Hey folks, this is David Blakesley. Uh, thank you for giving a listen to this new episode of Criterion Reflections. I'm just recording a brief intro, note of explanation, if you will, about this episode, letting you know that we did have some technical difficulties in the recording process. There were a few instances where our guests couldn't always hear each other very well. Uh, there were even some portions of the conversation where the file was lost and had to actually be recreated. Uh, so yeah, we definitely had some hassles that we had to work around. Still, I think it came together pretty well. We kept the conversation flowing and through a little bit of editing and a little bit of extra work, I think we've come up with a pretty serviceable recording and uh, a pretty decent coverage of a pretty important film in the career of Bruce Lee. So I just wanted to let you know that as you get into it, there may be a few times where you might notice some little lapses of continuity, gaps of silence. I think I've trimmed out most of that, uh, but certainly I'll be talking in the episode about some of the technical issues that were we were actively working around at the time of the recording. All that aside, this is a great conversation. I think if you're into Bruce Lee or even just a little bit martial arts curious, uh, this episode will give you some great material to think about and to consider. Uh, and of course, if you're familiar with this kind of filmmaking and uh, kind of a, you know, a deep student of the martial arts uh, in cinema, Michael Wirth, one of our guests, uh, certainly has a lot of expertise in that. And I think he will give you some fascinating insights and tell you about some things that maybe you haven't heard before. So all in all, I'm very happy to put this episode out there. Uh, but thank you for your indulgence and kindness and putting up with some of the technical glitches that uh, made this one a little bit extra work, but uh, definitely worth it. So with all that said, on with the show. Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and I am here to welcome you to episode 103 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, in which I and my friends are going to talk about Low Ways, The Fist of Fury. I guess it's just Fist of Fury, not The, <laughs> just Fist of Fury. And I'm very excited to get back into the world of martial arts cinema, the, uh, the explosion, the rise to prominence of Bruce Lee as a martial arts superstar, and I've got some real aficionados who are ready to kind of guide us through this uh, pivotal film in the career of Mr. Bruce Lee. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest right off the bat, starting with Jason Beamish. Welcome back to the show, Jason. How are you doing? Hello, I'm doing well. It's always nice to hear somebody say my friend. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on. So yes. tell me, Jason, what was the last time you were with us? I was trying to look oh, it up right gosh. before we started recording. <laughs> was it Fiddler? That could be. I don't it, know. Were you, were you on I, the short? Yeah. Oh, you know what? Yeah, I was on the short films. Yeah. But Fiddler was but maybe the last uh, full-length thing. But yeah. Yeah. That was the last time that I was made to feel like I was the color man. You know, we had some incredible <laughs> guests. And then I was also oh, yeah. with you. So, yes, yeah, and Jason Beamish. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's definitely happy. I'm happy to have you back on, and, and oh, good. Uh, welcome to season four of uh, yes. my little humble project here. And uh, speaking of uh, frequent guests, Richard Doyle, welcome back again. It's been a little bit, but uh, nice to have you on board. Thank you. It's good to be back. 
Excellent. And then our uh, other guest is one and only Michael Wirth, a uh, martial arts practitioner himself, an actor, a director, an artist of uh, of, of all sorts, and uh, just a really great guy. Michael, thank you so much for taking time out of your uh, travels and schedule to talk some Bruce Lee with us. Ah, well, you're too kind, David. It's an honor to be on here to talk the merging of Criterion and one of my uh, childhood heroes, Bruce Lee, and his cohorts. Oh, I, I wouldn't want to pass up one of these movies without at least giving you the opportunity to share your insights and uh, your your lived experience and knowledge and passion for this type of filmmaking. So I'm really happy that you've been able to join us. So let's get right into it. Uh, Fist of Fury, Bruce Lee, 1972, March of 72. And I'll just recount for maybe people who are just dropping in on this particular episode. It's been a little bit of a journey for me. A couple episodes ago, I did John Waters' Pink Flamingos. <laughs> and then <laughs> a couple weeks later, it was Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris. And now here we have another milestone of peak 72 cinema, Bruce Lee and Fist of Fury. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just been a journey. <laughs> so uh, bear with me as I kind of uh, resettle and calibrate my bearings. And we, we talk about a different type of movie making. Uh, this, is, this is a genuine masterpiece of kung fu cinema. Uh, Bruce Lee had already imagined or established himself as a pretty significant performer in The Big Boss, which uh, Richard and Michael, uh, the three of us got together, I think it was last summer, shortly after the Criterion Collection had just announced the upcoming release of Bruce Lee, his greatest hits, this spectacular uh, seven disc, uh, five features, or actually more than five features, but all the, all the great classic Bruce Lee films, as well as documentary footage, commentaries, you know, short uh, essays from various actors and performers and people who knew Bruce Lee. So we were looking forward to the release of this box set when we talked about The Big Boss. And uh, now here it is. It's been in our hands uh, for over a year or in this Richard's place for a few days. <laughs> but uh, let's, let's, let's talk just a little bit about this, this box. I think when we first uh, heard about The Big Boss, it was like, wow, Bruce Lee, Criterion? Do the two roads meet? They do. Uh, let's just get some of the reactions to the 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 fact that Criterion got this deal together. Uh, Jason, what were your thoughts when you first heard about Bruce Lee and the Criterion Collection? Uh, when exactly will it be up for me to pre-order, and <laughs> will it yeah. get shipped early? Absolutely. Yeah. Were you were you surprised? Was this anything that you expected might ever happen, or what was their kind of response? I, a long time ago, I decided that there's little point in acting surprised and being caught off guard by anything that comes out of Criterion, um, because the the moment you think something's going to happen, they get sweet, sweet back back. You know, it's <laughs> right. never to be expected. Yeah, yeah. I also try to avoid being upset whenever something like that happens because. <laughs> I have no control, and they've never asked my opinion. For sure, and and emo and 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 exerting negative emotional energy over that is like, what is even mm -hmm. the point, you know? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think it's it was a pretty great coup. Uh, you know, I was talking with Richard right before we started recording that mm -hmm. I think getting Enter the Dragon was kind of the the key piece here because there had been yeah. other Bruce Lee collections out there, but they had never gathered, you know, kind of all the you know, the peaks or or the major 
kung fu films that he released in his lifetime mm-hmm. richard what are some of your thoughts uh well th- that's kind of it i thought when it was announced i had thought well it's going to be a repeat of sets i've seen before so that's nice but uh but they i didn't think that they would actually get this enter the dragon as well as the the sets the movies that are always gathered together in sets so mm-hmm. it's quite a coup i mean and um it's it's got some extras in it that are unique to this set so it's really quite uh really quite a set yeah you know, you, so you've had some other bruce lee collections but you got this one uh, kind of part of your ongoing upgrade project right <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's right actually one of the very first dvd things i bought was a bruce lee collection of the of all of the movies but uh enter the dragon that okay. was pretty pretty bad quality um, until the shout factory set most of the collections were pretty poor prints yeah which was pretty pretty remarkable because you know bruce lee has had you know commercial resonance for quite a long time you'd think that they'd want to put a good edition out there but i guess in some cases they just put out whatever they can get their hands on so you just got the 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 set not that long ago have you had much time to get beyond this particular film or are you just kind of settling in yeah I, I really just watched this film. I got it uh, four days ago or something. Okay. Um, uh, but I, I watched this film and um, I've put all this, all the other ones in my queue to watch at some point. Excellent. All right, Michael. And, and so, yeah, you, you know, you've had a chance to react. Now, do you actually own the Bruce Lee Criterion box set? Let me ask you about that right up front. <clears throat> yeah, actually, I have it uh, framed on the wall. Just kidding. I don't uh, really have it framed, but I did. Uh, I did go out and, and buy it right away, and and I think I'm probably was just as surprised as as, as you guys when they announced it. I think it was a, a, a year before. I can't remember when it was earlier in the year where they were the the drawings and there was the Wong Kar Wai and the Bruce Lee was hinted at. Um, and I'm I'm sure there's a, a number of people that probably think why Bruce Lee. Um, now, granted, Bruce Lee has you know, other people that worked with him, to, you know, a film is more than one person. But um, his, 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 I think, presence, his singular presence, there's probably not many singular presence in a, a genre like, like his that affected a genre. And, and I'm, I'm happy that actually Criterion has included within this box set at least a few, um, a few examples of the Bruceploitation uh, genre that would follow, you know, they, they put in, uh, I guess, I'm not sure the guy's name, but he talks a little bit about it. There's some trailers in there, some kind of, a, um, it looks like, you know, some four by three, you know, I don't know if they grab where they grab. I, I had plenty of trailers I could have given them. Um, and then they have uh, tower of death and to some degree, and we'll talk about this one day, I'm sure game of death, but uh, tower death, which is a great example of, um, Bruce exploitation. Um, that followed the, the, the 10 years after uh, Bruce Lee passed away. Yeah, it, it really it does feel like um, Criterion, you know, pulled out all the stops, you know, put together the most comprehensive package they, they could. And on that whole topic of Bruce Ploitation, I know you had a lot to say about uh, about kind of your ongoing work in that uh, sort of subgenre uh, at, at, in our previous episode on The Big Boss. And I want to give you a chance to kind of, fill us in on where things are going or where they've they've actually arrived towards the end of the episode so give listeners a little something to look forward to little bonus track as we uh after we kind of conclude our conversation about this you know pretty important pretty pivotal film for bruce lee so 
let's get into it. So, so um, let's let's kind of lay the context. So, the big boss uh, had marked Bruce Lee's return from working in America, working in Hollywood. He was on the Green Hornet. That's probably the biggest kind of splash that he made in American pop culture. Um, what were the you know, the circumstances were that he he went back to Asia. Uh, you know, he was born in San Francisco, so he had American citizenship, but, you know, his, his family, his parents, his roots and everything were, were in Hong Kong. So, Michael, maybe ask, let me ask you, what, what was the, the, the pivot that said to Bruce Lee, it's time to leave Hollywood, go back to Hong Kong and, and kind of, you know, pursue his, his career and his ambitions in that, in that uh, arena? Well, it was a, a culmination of things, actually. I mean, he... Um... His father had passed away and he'd gone back to uh, Hong Kong at one point where he um, to, to be at the funeral. And while there, his show at that point, uh, The Green Hornet, which was known in Hong Kong at the time as the Cato Show, had, had developed a, a following and was successful. And so there he had a, he had some unknown uh, notoriety out there. And um, when he came, you know, back to, to, you know, did some television appearances while he was there and it kind of created a little bit more of a buzz. But when he came back to Hollywood, he just he realized that he wasn't going to get out of just the typical little supporting one. You know, he did small roles in Ironside. Um, he did uh, Here Comes the Brides. He was on he had a, a few reoccurring roles on Long Street with James Franciscus. But he knew that was going to be <clears throat> about the extent of his his probably his his film career. So um, when he went back to Hong Kong, he was kind of doing a Clint Eastwood. You know, Clint Eastwood at that point had gone to do the spaghetti westerns and had made himself much more famous after Rawhide by doing that. And so for Bruce, that's what it, that's um, something that really worked for him. And when he showed up on the scene, you know, here was he went right to the Shaw brothers, actually, and, and they offered him a, a deal. And it was very, you know, it wasn't very much. It was like $1,000 or a picture or something like that at the time. And so Golden Harvest came along and, and Raymond Chow, who had already been a part of uh, the Shaw Brothers, and said, we're going to, you know, I don't know, I think it was like five times what they were, he was being offered at Shaw Brothers. And it was for uh, the big boss. And at, and at this point, you know, Bruce Lee, in my opinion, had kind of was reaching the peak of his um, his physical uh, his physical martial arts expression, you know, he was going to, he, I mean, obviously he was only 30 or 31, so he was, he still had a ways to go, but he was really peaking by the time he, he got there. And, and, um, I think his, his philosophy and his, his martial arts were so, uh, unique to what was being taught or shown or exhibited in films at that time that, you know, he stood out right away. So he had already refined his techniques and and had really attained some mastery of martial arts. I think, like a musician or any other talented performer who knew, you know, uh, had a realistic assessment of his own skills, Bruce Lee, I think, came into that scene with a confidence that he had something unique and special going on there, and that that definitely comes through in these, you know, you know what you might call early films of his. Uh, in the big boss, I know he had been sort of cast as kind of the number two to to the uh, 
was it James Tien? Was he like the main star of that film, at least in the original forecast, you know, for the expectation. But as Bruce kind of showed his stuff, you know, low way said, you know what, we got to kind of reorient this thing and, and kind of give Bruce more prominence. And by the time of fist of fury there, there's no question. I mean, Bruce, you know, commands the stage every time he's on screen and he's on screen for pretty much, you know, the, the full run of the film, except for a few scenes where he's specifically not part of it. And, and his, his crew kind of suffers because of that. Um, but yeah, so, so, so Fist of Fury, was that conceived of as like a Bruce Lee starring vehicle? I mean, again, he was still under the direction of Low Way. There were some pretty famous clashes between uh, these two men of, of profound ego. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was made on what was a reportedly a tight budget of about $100,000 and went on to make many, many, many times that over a hundred million gross worldwide, uh, in a fairly short amount of time. So, uh, talk about return on investment. Um, yeah, Fist of Fury really launched him to a whole new level. From what I understand, um, some of the, the bad feeling between Bruce and Low Way mm-hmm. was caused by, um, Low Way taking a bit of credit for Bruce's fighting proficiency. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah, Low yeah. Way was basically trying to give, like he was like somehow Bruce Lee's instructor or mentor or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So Raymond Chow made the deal with Lee on this second film that Lee could do all the choreography of his own fight scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chow still has a producer's credit. Right. Um, But, but basically gave Bruce the kind of carte blanche to say, let's, let's do these scenes your way rather than maybe a more traditional Hong Kong style. Yeah, I, I think it really shows the the couple of scenes. There's like at least one prominent fight scene that Bruce isn't in the the Japanese attack on his school. Mm-hmm. Looks like a completely different movie. From yeah, it's it's that scene. kind of kind of frenetic chaos of just you know you know dozens might be a bit of an exaggeration, but probably you know ten, fifteen, up to twenty people all slapping and and kicking and. It's just kind of this <laughs> this frenzy, right? Yeah, it's very very stagey. Yeah, yeah. It it feels like a kind of a choreography, uh, almost like a, a dance or a, a ritual going on there. So, you know, whereas when when Bruce is is doing his thing, it it just feels very gritty and and very you know, kind of hardcore as far as, you know, there's people who are really taking punches and, and taking hard falls and the stunt guys or, or the extras, whatever you want to call them, they had to raise their game considerably to, to hang in there with Bruce and make it look convincing and, and earn their keep. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, in terms of low way and, and Bruce Lee, you know, their, their relationship, we don't exactly know exactly what happened between them. I, you know, um, there, but it's important to keep in context, particularly in the 70s. And this went on for a while. Jackie Chan later in his life was one of the more vocal people to sort of try and uh, prevent this from uh, being the case. But the, the triads and the, the, the gangsters were pretty heavy into the, into the film production. 
And Lo Wei was actually a member of a particular triad. Uh, Bruce Lee happened to be a member of a triad when he was when he was younger. You know, I mean, there's a lot of uh, great. I mean, there's, there's an entire book to be written actually on the the gangsters and and film production in Hong Kong at the time. Um, but uh, you can look it up in the papers. There was it was only about two weeks, three weeks before Bruce Lee passed away. Uh, when this whole thing between Lil Wei and, and Bruce Lee came to a head and Lil Wei said that Bruce Lee pulled a knife on him and Bruce Lee was like, well, if I was going to fight you, I wouldn't need a knife. And um, anyway, that that did happen later and it did elevate. But at the time they uh, were doing Fist of Fury, um, Lil Wei did want Bruce Lee to do his next film, which was one called A Man Called Tiger, which ultimately starred Jimmy Wong Yu and Jimmy Wong Yu was a kind of an up-and-coming star right when Bruce Lee showed up. And that couple of years that Bruce Lee was around, it sort of knocked Jimmy Wang Yu off of his his pedestal a little bit. And when Bruce Lee passed away, he kind of moved back into his place. And um, But yeah, in, in, in reference to the fight choreography, you're right in that Bruce Lee, when he did step step into uh, Do Fist of Fury, and I, th- I believe the first fight scene that was shot was the one in the dojo, um, that... Uh, you know, Bruce Lee was clearly going to do his choreography the way he wanted to do it, but he was not um, against giving face to Hanyan Jet, who was, you know, the big boss from the the prior film, where they both shared a lot more um, of the choreography duties. But here, as you were mentioning, that one scene where the Japanese show up at the school um, and where we get to see Jackie Chan for the first time, actually, you can see clearly Hanyan Jet's choreography there. And it's a, it's much more the flailing arm and the chopping and the sweeping motions that was much prominent, much more prominent at the time. And then with with Bruce Lee, you get a lot more pausing in his beats and, of course, his more, you know, Jeet Kune Do style um, fighting that he was, you know, that he knew would stick out because it's not what everybody was doing. In fact, it's kind of interesting on an interesting note when you watch A Man Called Tiger, which was the next film that Lo Wei and the cinematographer Chris Chan and the rest of them did with Jimmy Wang Yu. Hanyan Jet actually plays a, a bad guy, but if you watch his movements, you can kind of tell he's trying to do a little Bruce Lee in it. So it's 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 kind of interesting. In the in the kind of the overall martial arts scene, you know, Bruce Lee comes in as this kind of breath of fresh air, this kind of innovator, and you know, and he's got like a star charisma, you know. And and again, maybe to put us back into that context, you know, there there were other obviously prominent martial arts fighters there was a there was a, a fully developed cinematic culture a scene if you want to call it that uh but bruce lee just kind of came in and saw an opportunity to to take this to a new level uh jason what are some of your impressions just as far as bruce lee's establishing of this character we can even go back to the the very earliest scenes of the film which is where he shows up uh to the funeral of his master it's a bit of a histrionic demonstration, but it, it establishes his character as this completely sold out, devoted, dedicated disciple, you know, the, the frantic scratching at the sand at the, at the master's grave and all of that, uh, uh, you know, maybe even to ask a little bit about your, 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 you know, impressions of Bruce Lee as, as a character here and, and, uh, and how did he sort of establish his, his presence to you in the early stages of this film? I, I was very, very late to the Bruce Lee uh, party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hadn't yeah. seen Enter the Dragon, uh, the, I mean, a couple years before the set came out, but I was familiar with him. 
but I was more familiar with other uh, Kung Fu um, and martial film mm-hmm. before that. However, um, like what, like Jackie Chan or Crouching well, Tiger? Jackie Hit Chan would have been my first yeah. Crouching Tiger, yeah. um, the Shogun Assassin, uh, Lone okay. Wolf and Cub yeah. movies. Um, okay. Which are not bad. The, I mean, Lone Wolf and Cub is a 72. We'll be talking about that later this yeah. year. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Um, so it's it's interesting to go back to somebody that kind of recreated or I don't really I don't really want to say reinvigorated because like you were saying it these sort of films have existed uh for years before uh, Bruce Lee shows up but to see after seeing what came after and then coming in and being able to really get through this set get uh, uh beat by beat essentially of his films and what he did to uh, change how it was perceived and make, make them popular here. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's, it's difficult after watching the acrobatics for lack of a better word of uh, mm-hmm. Jackie yeah, the trampolines and all that stuff, stuff to see something. So street fighter gritty in your face. It's, mm-hmm. it's, kind of strange but at the same point it's really it's really interesting to see his take on i mean if if you want to really want to be honest this the story of this movie was kind of rehashed you know Mm -hmm. the the school has been attacked and the master is dead so now you must get revenge it's Sort yeah, of play and, and stand up for his honor. I mean, I, 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 I do want to say some more about the story because I think mm-hmm. the historical grounding does make this very cookie cutter kind of revenge tale mm-hmm. more interesting than if it was just our school has been defeated. We must avenge the master, you know, and defend his honor. Sure. Well, sure. We, we've seen that. We see that in, in samurai movies and, and other types of kind of, you know, basic, you know, boilerplate action flicks i mean american army movies whatever Uh, this one here does have some very interesting cultural context and i found that actually very fascinating to sort of get into that world a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, richard maybe we can talk to you a little bit what are some of your thoughts just on the kind of the i don't know how much you're aware or if you've read up on the historical background but these are even though chen zen the 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 uh, bruce lee character is a fictional sort of uh construct the basic story has a lot of uh, grounding in truth and in history. So what are some of your thoughts along the line of, of, you know, how the story connects with you? Yeah. The, the, the fact that um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the, on the teacher's name. As Hua Yunjin or something like that. I mean, Hu <laughs> Yunjai. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, in, he's, he's very interesting as a historical figure and um, would be, like Western audiences might know him from uh, the Jet Li film Fearless, where Jet Li plays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he he kind of connects to. It's an interesting sort of connection to Bruce Lee in that he's a, an early figure that um, sort of favored mixing martial arts styles together, and that his school uh, didn't have one style of, of kung fu taught there. He invited teachers from various different styles to the school, mm-hmm. which which continued after his death, and that's sort of one of the hallmarks of Bruce Lee is that he 
did not stick to a particular style of fighting. Mm -hmm. Just use whatever works. And it's, um, so the story has some sort of deep resonance to like Lee as a person. Yeah. And it seems like Bruce Lee really wanted to bring him to prominence. I, again, I mean, I, I've seen the references where there's other, you know, martial arts films that, that were based on this character on some of those historic circumstances, but I don't see any indication that this was a story that had been covered in previous films. So, so you know, like uh, Trevor and I, we did a, a the samurai trilogy, um, Masashi Miyamoto, you know, which is a revered and legendary Japanese character, also based in historic fact, who had had many movies made about him, both before and after the the particular Samurai trilogy that we talked about. But it seems like Bruce Lee found something here that he really wanted to to build on and and to bring to the attention of audiences who would probably be hooked in by his, you know, very unique. Uh, skills and talents as well as his eclectic fighting techniques and even the fact that the school that Hu Yunja founded taught restraint it is the classic you know we only use our skills as self-defense we're not aggressive we're not assassins uh, we don't assault people you know on a whim uh, we do that we we have principles we have values and and you see that portrayed at the very beginning when uh after the funeral scene and all the scratching at the grave and all of that, uh, now there's they 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 are there in the school still you know in in their period of bereavement and, and grieving and mourning the loss of their master at a young age under somewhat perhaps suspicious circumstances, and then here comes Wu the translator along with a couple of his uh, you know thug sidekicks from the Japanese dojo, and they're patting Bruce on the cheek. They're taunting him. They've got their little gift of the uh, sick men of Asia you know, and, and Chinese calligraphy there. It's, it's all extremely insulting and provocative. And it seems to me that Bruce is using this device to kind of almost like rally his audience. Obviously, this is a film made primarily for the Hong Kong audience. Certainly when they were casting this, I don't think they quite expected maybe bruce had a suspicion but i i think there was a you know there was a sense that they're playing to the locals uh, of course this thing takes on a global reach pretty quickly uh and probably fills in a lot of you know non-chinese non-asian uh viewers on a little slice of history that they had no clue about uh, prior to watching this film uh but Michael, I see you're you're with us some of the, through some of the technical difficulties we've been uh, skating around here. Um, what what more can you say just about the sort of the, the historical context? Yeah, yeah. So we're just talking a little bit about the the historical background, the the school uh, of, of martial arts discipline that Hu Yunja founded, and Bruce Lee's decision. I th- to me, it feels like a pretty deliberate choice to say i want to really emphasize this guy this story and and appeal to uh you know the cultural pride maybe even a sense of nationalism uh about shanghai this great city under japanese occupation and having to put up with some of the insults and put downs uh there's a historic basis in that in the early 20th century but i think bruce was also using that kind of chip on the shoulder about being disrespected and looked down upon because you know, you're just a Chinese, you know, whatever. I don't want to throw any particular insults out there, but it feels like, you know, China was not getting the respect that uh, maybe Bruce and, and many others uh, thought they deserved as a culture, as a civilization. 
uh, or even just as as people. Uh, so so can you fill us in just a little bit more about what might have informed the decision to to base the story on this particular set of historic circumstances? Well, yeah, Ho Yunja um, started, he was from the north of China and he settled in Shanghai where he, he built the Qingwu school, like you mentioned, that that um, was very similar to, to, to Bruce Lee in terms of his um, being open to other martial arts and rather than being style versus style kind of thing. Um, and uh, he, um, he uh, as a matter of fact, the, the, the Sick Men of Asia thing came, which plays a huge part of the popularity of this movie. Uh, in in uh, Hong Kong, um, that came from a, a real Ho Yunja uh, story where he was answering a challenge by a Russian that uh, that Pet- the Petrov character was based on the, the Bob Baker character, and uh, he called him. I guess the Russian had called the Chinese the sick men of Asia because they weren't taking up his challenge. Um, but Ching Wu means doorway to excellence, and uh, that was the original title of the film. As a matter of fact, I just want to do a quick little. Uh, aside for the Criterionists, which is that there's another Criterion film that um, that actually has reference to Fist of Fury, and it's Mikey and Nikki. 1976 is Mikey and Nikki. There's a scene where they're driving by a movie marquee, and if you look up on the marquee, you see uh, a couple. It's like a grindhouse showing, and there's a couple of films, like The Laughing Policeman, I think is one of them. But it says Time of the Iron Hand. And Time of the Iron Hand was an original release. In fact, a lot of people didn't know if it really was released officially under that title, but for Fists of Fury. But Mikey and Nikki now proves it. So, um, but anyways, they were going to do a movie on Ho Yun Ja. Uh, for whatever reason, Bruce Lee didn't want to play Ho Yun Ja. So they looked on the roster, saw there was a character named Chen Zan, and, um, and they thought it was a strong name. So Bruce Lee took that... that uh, that uh, role and the idea of of Ho Yun Jai he really had um, died from what they they assumed was him being poisoned he had a, a Japanese doctor which is maybe where they pulled some of this Japanese thing from they found arsenic in his body uh, arsenic was used as a healer as well as uh, you know as <laughs> obviously a non-healing uh, drug uh, but we don't know for sure but um, the, the the poisoning did come from um, come from real life yeah, a little bit of a conspiracy theory, you might say, but you know, like I say, most conspiracy theories have a little bit of, of something that gives them a little bit of heft and substance there. So, so that's that's the basic, the gist of it there. Um, but what would you say about uh, kind of Bruce's identification with the idea that you know the Chinese are being disrespected, that uh, you know the, the world maybe needs to take them seriously? Even the, you know, I, I, some of the reviews I've read, both uh, older as well as more contemporary, sometimes find fault with this film because they feel it's kind of like, uh, kind of racist or, or or kind of bigoted against Japanese. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that particular conflict. I certainly don't feel any animosity towards the Japanese or any desire to denounce them as a cultural or civilization. But I also understand that. You know, Japan's history in China was not very honorable uh, in the 1970s. I mean, memories of World War II and and some of the other cultural tensions between those nations were were fairly fresh and and still alive in the memories and experiences of a lot of people. So, uh, you know, I'm never going to be one to you know cheer on you know, racism or 
you know, uh, cultural disrespect, but I also understand that those feelings run pretty strong when you've experienced, you know, conquest and domination, colonialism, imperialism. So, you know, people at least uh, need a chance to vent. And I think there, it felt like there's a little bit of that going on here. And, um, you know, I, I just found that actually kind of fascinating just to kind of recognize the, you know, the, the seeds of history and, and cultural conflict and division that kind of propel this plot. And then that goes on into other scenes, the whole, you know, no dogs are Chinese (laughs) and Bruce kind of smashing that sign with a flying kick there. I mean, I I don't think he was just playing with those ideas. I think there was something, you know, genuine in, in his desire to sort of stand up and, and, and take pride in, in his, in his cultural heritage, as well as the, you know, the discipline and the, and the dedication that it took to, perfect his skills to the level that we see it demonstrated on screen. Yeah, it, no doubt, no doubt. And I, I think that, you know, we're we're all old enough to realize this, that we're, we're coming today, we're recording this and listening to this at a time when there's a certain cultural, societal uh, sensitivity that didn't really exist quite the same way back then. I'm not saying that, it, it, you know, individuals didn't feel this. And in fact, Bruce Lee in his own way had his, his uh, own issues with this. But, you know... The um, the idea of this, you know, anti-Japanese sentiment, um, it was, you know, this there was a little leftover of that from the war. You know, I mean, this was a little closer to the, the war and there were some bad memories. But to, but at the same time, the Japanese and the Chinese were functioning as a unit, you know, specifically in the in the film industry. There was like exchange programs going on. The, the Shaw brothers were regularly screening uh, Kurosawa and Japanese um, sword films to the uh, filmmakers because they just so respected their filmmaking techniques and they would send Chinese actors over there and, and, and vice versa. And, you know, the sick men of Asia um, and the, 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 um, the no Chinese allowed the destruction of that sign that takes place at that park in Macau. Um, you know, those were big moments at that time for, for the Chinese who, you know, in the Mandarin version, he's Bruce Lee says, you know, we are not, we, he says, um, the Chinese are not the sick men of Asia. Now, in the dub, the U.S. dub, he says, we are not the sick men of Asia. So, uh, you know, they kind of differentiated between the Chinese being sick men. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think that, that there was, even though you've got this hostility that we look at now and we're like, oh, this is terrible. You know, at the time, I think even the Japanese where Bruce Lee was huge. You know, he was so popular there. They were just, they got it was a movie. You know, this is a movie. We're inventing something out and... You know, they're bad Chinese and bad Japanese and good Chinese and good Japanese, you know, whatever. Um, and in fact, there's a remake of, of Fist of Fury called The Fist of Legend with, with Jet Li that was a little bit more with that modern sentiment because you have a Japanese instructor teaching the the, the Chen Zan character. Um, but even Bruce Lee himself, you know, he, I, you know, he, he was a samurai fan, a samurai movie fan. And if one of his favorite movies, another Criterion film, is uh, The Sword of Doom. And if you watch his performance in this closely, and maybe not so closely because it's kind of obvious at times, he is doing Nakadai. You, when he starts getting more obsessed with this fighting and this vengeance, he's you know, doing a, one of his samurai heroes. Yeah, yeah. Pause the movie so we can kind of get it out, right? Well, you know, I we we did a conversation about Zadoichi and the One Armed Swordsman, which is kind of one of those crossovers, right there. Yeah, excellent. 
All right. So so let's get into the film itself. So we've got the established setup now. We've got the the rival schools. Uh, we've got the dojo that's doing their thing. Uh, Chen Zen comes in after he's been kind of, you know, mocked and pr- provoked to, to where he can barely stand it. I, I mean, again, I just love those establishing scenes where he's just clenching his fist in his, his pristine white suit, kind of giving those side eye glances, gritting his teeth, and and helpless to do anything because the new guy who's running the dojo basically forbids him from from lashing out. And so Chen Zen, the, the hot headed dedicated disciple that he is decides he's going to take matters into his own hands and uh off we go so he he goes into the dojo and i mean that is just a magnificent scene it really is uh you know i I will i'll just say my background with bruce lee has been more like just watching the highlights i think i saw enter the dragon on tv probably in some kind of uh you know not censored, but just kind of, you know, clipped out version with commercials and, and not the full attention. So I, I am here, guys. I'm the newbie. I'm the novice. Uh, I know, Jason, you had said you're you're kind of late to the Bruce Lee party. I've certainly known about Bruce Lee since, you know, middle school, you know, eighth grade when, uh, you know, kung fu fighting was on the radio and, and sure. you saw the clips and all of that. But I'm here to almost like learn from you guys, particularly Richard and Michael, perhaps, who maybe have a lot more experience, not with just with Bruce Lee, but also in this genre. But again, going back to that dojo scene, I was just mesmerized. That scene where kind of Bruce kind of just shoots his fingers out there and the, the guys are circling around him. That's just really electrifying. I, I really loved that uh, that breakout moment where it's like, okay, <laughs> things are really getting real. So uh, I don't know, what, what are some other sort of observations or insights about that particular uh, exchange or or that that brawl he does one amazing standing kick of about six people turning in a circle yeah that yeah. just that just blows me away he, he stands perfectly still and turns and kicks one after the other just just turning around <laughs> yeah i mean it, it is it's it's it happens so fast and it's so smooth that it's almost like easy to take for granted but it's like just back that up and take a look at it again. What he just did there is absolutely mind-blowing. Well, I tell you, it gives my heart some great joy that you guys have some <laughs> some pleasure from this fight scene because, um, you know, as a kid, my favorite fight scene of Bruce Lee's, when I watched it countless times, was always the cavern scene in Enter the Dragon. You know, I know you haven't gotten to it yet, but it's a, a fairly episodic sequence where he just goes from room to room to room and fights all these guards. And it's just, it's a pretty amazing, energetic um, fight sequence. But as I've, you know, I've grown older and, and studied filmmaking and become a director and a choreographer myself, you know, my appreciation and love from the perspective of cinema and craft of this fight scene has has taken it up to the number one uh, notch on my my list and I think it should be studied by every every um, every fight choreographer or director and this when you you know we've we've been presenting Bruce Lee more or less in this white morning outfit uh, up to this point we're now about 15 minutes into the film and then as he swaggers his way into the Japanese school of course with the sign in his hand he's wearing a black outfit now you know we've sort of elevated his his uh, character's vengeance level I guess at this point and when he finally goes into action we're not 
treated with some giant over the top and crazy first, you know, crazy kick. It's actually super simple. He just backfists the guy, just drops him, quick kick, uh, quick punch, and he's and he drops um, Max Lee, the uh, dark haired Japanese. And then at that point, Peter Chen jumps up and he's like, "I'll take him." You know, and he goes at him. And he just kind of grabs him and does a, a little bit of a, a judo, you know, aikido almost throw. And then at that point. There was one of my favorite shots actually in the movie where there's a, a dollying back and Bruce Lee is walking towards us and he and we see in the lens one one guy and, and Bruce kicks him and then turns to spin as if he's going to kick somebody else who we don't see quite yet. But as the camera pulls back, we realize somebody's rushing in off camera and he kicks him right as he's coming into the lens. And it's just such a great poetic piece. It's just it's one of my um favorite moments and this fight scene just plays today as such a historical not just moment in i think low way's career as a matter of fact bruce lee's career but just in in just the you know as we talked about the the moment of where you know the this chinese walks into a japanese school and and takes them all out as a matter of fact we we get another um criterion appearance uh for a second time which is an actor named yun ting who um, was in uh, Touch of Zen, and he was one of the Seven Little Fortunes, which was the Peking opera group that Sammo Hung and Jackie Chan and Yun Bu and Yun Wan, all those guys were famous, uh, famous for. So, so the Touch of Zen guy, he was that the the guy with kind of the red haired wig, or was it the shorter guy? I mean, uh, no the the actor with the the red hair is a guy named Peter Chan. And uh, Yun Ting is uh, who was in *The Touch of Zen*. He he was he actually was a uh, he's actually an Enter the Dragon, but he's also um, he uh, worked for King Hu quite often. He's the guy on the left when Bruce Lee pulls out the nunchakus, which of course was another huge moment in this fight scene. Um, but uh, he's on the left side, and the two actors who are looking at each other, kind of like, "What the heck is this thing?" Uh, and then looking at Bruce Lee, and Bruce Lee knew, I mean, he knew at this point that he was pulling out a weapon that was, you know, going to be a, like, just like it's surprising the the uh, Japanese students, it was going to be a, a surprise, <laughs> I think, to the audiences as well. And it's, it's kind of why it made an appearance in uh, every uh, every Bruce Lee movie since. Oh, well, yeah. And it, I mean, it continues to this day. I mean, I've, I've been kind of active on TikTok and I follow a few nunchaku masters in there. You know, they're like whipping, you know, the, the, the pop, you know, the tabs off of pop bottles and stuff like that. So, or, 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 or knocking cards out of a deck, whatever. So, so yeah, tell me just a little bit about the, the role mm -hmm. of, of that particular weapon in martial arts before and after Bruce Lee. I mean, you've already kind of talked about how it sort of set this new standard. Had it been used with any significance prior to that or was this kind of a yeah to the best of my knowledge i've the form i've looked that this there was one other appearance that i could find where nunchaku was used and it was i think from the same year and chances are i because I, I even believe that the film itself had references to ching Wu that it was possibly a real quick knockoff of fist of fury which wouldn't you know wouldn't have surprised me um, but the weapon, you know, was taught to Bruce Lee by, uh, Dan Asanto, who is his friend and student, and he fights him in actually a uh, game of death, which I know you'll get to in 1978, I guess. Um, 
But uh, Dan would say he'd, he'd teach Bruce Lee some moves with it, and a week later Bruce would come back and be doing it ten times better than he was. He had <laughs> taught him. Um, but what's so interesting again is in the 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 subgenre of Bruce Plotation, these new chakras were so identified with Bruce Lee as a result of this that there are in movies there's even a movie called the chaku master it's it's all like this bruce lee ripoff this guy's like a walks around like a uh, like a, a gunslinger with two pairs of new chakus um but the year uh what was it 76 i think they did two sequels simultaneous sequels to fists of fury one was directed by low way and starred a young jackie chan who had yet to be jackie chan and the other one was uh called fists of fury part two and was um directed by a, uh, a guy named Liso Nam, who I'd spent uh, quite a bit of time with. And um, both films used the Nunchaku as an almost, uh, an almost um, I want to say, a, a deified instrument, where in the case of Lo Wei's film, it was kept in this sacred box and presented to Jackie Chan at one point in the film. And then in, in the Lee So Nam's version, uh, the, the Nuchaka was going to be buried with the Chen Zan character, but gets rescued quickly from being buried under the dirt by one of the students and, uh, and, um, and uh, unleashes its fury later in the, uh, later in the movie. Well, you know, the, the portability of it obviously is, is kind of a key advantage. But just the sheer awesomeness of of this dude. I mean, he's got no shirt on. He, you know, he's he's ripped, and he's just you know whipping this thing around. And then you know, on a on a moment, you know, getting it tucked under his arm, so it's completely under control. He's not just out there just you know flinging it around, you know, like some kind of madman. It is it is you know completely intimidating <laughs> and and lethal, at least potentially. Uh, but completely controlled and I, again that's just another technical marvel that he's able to just pull this thing out of his pants and again take the fight to a, a whole other level uh yeah yeah absolutely breathtaking richard or jason what do you guys think about the nunchucks <laughs> he's the american bastardization <laughs> as a chubby white boy growing up in the 80s <laughs> they were literally everywhere uh, oh, yeah. We all have them, and if they weren't real, which they were not, they were poor facsimiles at the very least. Yeah, um, thick wooden dowels that you get down at the the lumber yard. Yeah, there, <laughs> with just whatever sort of shoelace or twine you could find. <laughs> um, yeah. What I thought was interesting, I was reading through. Oh, geez, who wrote the book? There's a uh, one of the kung fu books I was reading. It. He mentions the Nunchaku is the least effective martial art weapon. Hmm. Uh, just with its difficulty. And you you have to be in pretty close proximity. Uh, yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, there's obviously some limit in your reach. And, and uh, you know, is your opponent willing to just, you know, take evasive maneuvers? If you can't get close enough, then I guess you're not going to do much damage. But, you know, he's taking on swords and yeah, all yeah, of yeah. that in this film. It's, yeah. uh, it's kind of <laughs> like the the guy in Raiders with the whip that, yeah. and the sword. <laughs> yeah. You know, Andy looks, yeah. lo looks long enough. He's like, you know, I'm not going to deal with this. And just dispatches Boom. him. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was uh, Rick Myers, by the way. Uh, Films of Fury, okay. but I, I mean, it's it's neat for sure. Sure, and you get the whipping sound yeah. effects, you know, obviously all of that, and just his total badassery. Mm -hmm. I think that is just like 
you know, totally grabs the attention and doesn't let you go once he's once he lets it rip. It's kind of skipping ahead, but the the second time he breaks them out, like in the climax of the film, it's for yeah. a good reason. It's the only thing that can disarm the the, the katana there. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we we can you know jump ahead and talk about some of his other fighting scenes as techniques, but I think again we've we've kind of talked about the dojo scene. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's the different encounters he's had, he has with some of his, you know, his enemies. I mean, this is where he is avenging the, the honor of his, his deceased master. He goes after the, you know, the Japanese cook and, uh, his sidekick there. He, he takes I, out uh, Luke. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to point out that yeah. this, in this sequence is kind of interesting because, First, we we've got a, only a, a few sporadic romantic moments with um, with Bruce Lee and Nora Mao, and I've always noted that those romantic uh, interchanges take place either in a graveyard or at the base of an urn. You know, so there it's like constantly a a, a romance around death, which maybe was not Lowe's intention, but I think it, it strikes strikes me in the in the film. Uh, this scene here where she gets up and talks to him and then leaves. It's an interesting moment because he, it's a top, it's like this top shot and he looks up, like he suddenly just looks up at the photo. Like there's not a sound or anything. He's just, it's almost like it's calling to him and there's a, a, a candle in the shot and it's uh, it's like burning right below Bruce Lee. And then he, he stands up and turns and it's always struck me as if he's being told from the other side, you want the guys that killed me? They're in the, <laughs> they're in the, the house somewhere. And he, because he gets up and he looks around, there's this whole little sequence where he's moving around, and he finally stumbles on uh, Wong Chung and and who's the cook and um, Han Yun Jet, who who is the uh, choreographer, and he played the boss and the big boss. And this this sequence here, I've always really liked it. First and foremost, the choreography again was very inventive. When Bruce Lee jumps, if you watch it, he dives in, he dives across the table and kicks Wong Chung, and then he spins while he's on the table and hits um, Han Yun Jet. And it's a very un kind of I want to say un Bruce Lee type of move, and more of an innovative uh, future Jackie Chan move. But it just it's it's it just always was an impressive little piece right there. But then what's more interesting to me is that when he gets down and here he is, you know, it's a quick scene. He's about to kill the guy that that um, spoiler alert. He's about to kill the guy that uh, poisoned his master. But what happens is Bruce Lee all of a sudden lunges in with one punch into his stomach. Right. And it, and now we get our first use of slow motion in the film. We drop into 64 frames or whatever it was. And and Bruce and the sound gets pulled back and we're just sort of hearing this echoing of what we assume is his fist vibrating. <laughs> and then the character slowly falls, kind of always reminds me of the Seven Samurai when we get that one shot where the you're not really sure it's slow motion until the guy falls over. And then slow motion is used again the next time when Bruce Lee does a similar move, so he's punching him in the face to this Japanese uh, brother. Hmm. So was slow motion something that had been, is that, is that sort of an innovation or just something that kind of was used more strategically here? Obviously slow motion is, as I mean, Peckinpah and the wild bunch is probably one of the more famous uh, from around this time. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't necessarily a, an innovation. I mean, slow motion had been used in the Shaw brothers, uh, 
films in prior to this. I mean, maybe not that readily, but it was definitely the 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 use of it in, in this film was very limited. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't even think it was used in their prior film, The Big Boss. And we're we're talking about the same filmmakers, you know, Chris Chan and uh, the cinematographer Lo Wei and Bruce Lee. Um, and part of that may have to do the fact that they, you know, were on location in Thailand and certain things may have been a little more difficult for them to carry off than being on the, um, set in, uh, Golden Harvest. Yeah. I mean, so, so were those slow motion scenes like chosen for a particular effect, you think, uh, again, just kind of, was that something that you saw in martial arts films of this era that had not been used so frequently? Well, this is, seems like a good point for me to go ahead and make a statement that while I spoke ill for lack of better words on the, the plot and the story, um, I, when I rewatched it, I missed that opening card telling you how important the, the actual story is. Then it has a ridiculous Ennio Marconi style opening theme song. (laughs) And then I paused for several days in my watch and I picked it up today when uh, Bruce Lee walks into the office kind of like Jerry Lewis to fix the phone. Apparently exactly like Jerry Lewis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, well, apparently really Lee similar. likes Jerry Lewis. And apparently Lee really liked Jerry Lewis. So <laughs> and then it has that then it has that ridiculous theme song at the end. So if you're not paying super close attention, it can look very formulaic without actually having that historical context which I did not give to myself this time. For sure. Well, you know, and, and there definitely are some, what you might consider, I don't know, cheesy mm-hmm. elements or, or, you know, the, the kind of run of the mill exploitation. And, and you're right. I mean, again, I, I mentioned earlier coming right out of a Tarkovsky podcast, this is, <laughs> this is movie making of a, of, a, of a different order, but it's okay. I mean, I don't need, you know, two hours of of women with their back to the camera smoking a cigarette between my <laughs> takes of bruce lee doing what he does you know uh it's a, it's a different vibe a different wavelength and a, a different mentality uh but 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 it's, it's great cinematic art yeah. in its own way and I, and I really do feel like this is a this is an excellent film <laughs> uh i you know there there might be some detractors and i i even again some of the reviews i've read would put this for reasons that don't really make a lot of sense to me into a a lower tier of Bruce Lee films. It's like, well, maybe you're just not into Bruce Lee. I don't know. But this to me feels like it's got everything you'd want from, from a movie uh, starring this guy. Sure. There's only, there's only basically four films to form the tier. Yeah. Right. right. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yes. An unfortunate part of history that we only have, you know, four films of, of Bruce Lee's to, to pick from, but I'm, I certainly feel this is the one that sits at the top. If you were going to just look at it from the point of view of craftsmanship from the director and the stage and even Bruce Lee's performance. I mean, there are levels to this performance as we were, we were talking about where he, he comes in as a very sort of frightened, frantic, hurt boy, and then kind of gets into a little bit of a cocky swagger. And then once he's killed, the, the I mean, you literally, if you watch it again, once he's killed the cook that poisoned his master, he lapses into a whole different personality. That's where we see him at the graveyard next, and he's looking around like a rabid dog eating. I mean, he's eating a dog, I think, in the shot, but he's looking around with this sort of frenetic 
you know, intense. I mean, he goes into his moment of romance, but I mean, his his acting is is uh, it does have levels, and it's not just sort of one note. Um, Chris Christopher Chen, who did the cinematography for both The Big Boss and and for this film, his work stands out here in low ways. You know, I mean, he worked in unison, obviously, is much more um, notable as being um, as being elevated, I guess. Uh, I, I I can sometimes assume that's just because they're on a sound stage and things are more controlled. Where in Thailand they were probably running around. There's a lot more handheld in in uh, the Big Boss than you would you would see here in this in this film. Um, and just the choreography. There's I think the film lags a couple times. Actually, when Lo Wei enters and plays the detective, you know it sort of. Uh, it's there's a little bit of that back and forth. He goes to the Japanese and talks to them. He goes to the Chinese and talks to them. And I, that's a, probably the one part of the film that sort of crushes it a little bit. But um, you know, the, the, the stuff with Bob Baker, you know, that's is great. You know, he's by the way, Bruce Lee does Bob Baker's uh, voice in the Mandarin version. When you hear the, when you hear the Russian talking, it's actually Bruce Lee's voice. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I feel this this film definitely. If if anybody was going to pick a, a Bruce Lee film to watch, to, that you were going to say was the most well made Bruce Lee film, I would I would call this one out in a hot second. Oh yeah, and as we mentioned, you know, I mean, he was a huge Jerry Lewis fan, and I think Bruce Lee even knew. You know, he remember he was very close to Steve McQueen, and he was probably trying to steal ideas from his actor friends all the time. Um, but you know, he he was aware that he couldn't just run around being the 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 killer um the, you know the the madman that he he sort of portrays at some points he had to sometimes step back and 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 do his old man do his jerry lewis or uh, just some of the just some of the close-ups of his his face sometimes the expressions he makes are subtle but very funny well and i think i yeah even even like the cinematography i mean the the, the filmmaking craft i i was i was very convinced this is this is well shot you know the the the, you know the the compositions just the visuals they make sense Mm -hmm. the story was engaging Uh, like you you talked a little bit about his uh his scenes with nora mao and and this is apparently his only like sort of significant love interest romance angle which you know pretty light as far as that kind of thing goes but you know i i did enjoy yeah and you also talked about bruce lee as an actor we were we were talking a little bit about some of his uh, master of disguise moments there and it's a it's a little bit of comic relief but i felt like you know he's showing some versatility there and some willingness to to put himself out there and, and maybe you know make make himself a little bit of a butt of a joke here right yeah, so so you know he 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 wasn't afraid to even maybe poke a little bit of fun at his at his own image. Uh, obviously, you know he's he's a brutal street fighter. He will you know not back down to anybody. Um, and when it gets time to you know take care of business, uh, he has no peer. But you know he's he's not so full of himself that he can't you know put on a funny wig and kind of stoop his posture and and you know play a little bit of a buffoon even if it's just for you know a few moments on the screen even dye his hair somehow <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well and I, I you know another thing just kind of flashed in my head from those opening credits you know diff- different hairstyles and i think again just his physical presentation i mean he's a he's a handsome guy uh but he he's really got a, a to me He's got the look and the, you know, kind of the charisma of a, 
you know what what he turned out to be this you know completely global superstar that appeals to people from all races all nations men women you know every, kids you know everybody can look to bruce lee and say that dude's got it going on you know um you know the old saying women want to be with him and men want to be him and all of that kind of thing and i think again he's he's an ambassador to, in some ways to to uh you know to the rest of the world at a time when china was either not taken seriously at all or was just kind of being lumped together as uh you know this communist menace or or uh, or whatever the case may be uh you know bruce lee has a has a unique and and kind of a complex uh, cultural heritage based on you know the circumstances of his birth his work in the west and and it really you know this this film just seems like it really established him as a character that would go on to you know to greater things we don't need to get into some of the things that happened due to his, you know, his early and certainly highly premature passing. Uh, we've got other films coming up in the in the podcast where we'll be able to get into maybe more of his legacy and all of that. Um, but yeah, we're we're having a lot of technical issues with the recording. I'm certainly hoping that I get some good files out of this to edit. So maybe we need to start winding things down just a little bit here. So um, uh, Richard, maybe just kind of give me some of your summary thoughts on on uh, Fist of Fury here. I think there are two things. One, I think you know when you talk about a real movie star, there's somebody who absolutely jumps off the screen at you and mm -hmm. i think bruce lee like right from the big boss kind of jumps off the screen like he's yeah. just very charismatic and i think mm -hmm. in this film you really see that like he's he's like the center of attention in this film and he's not like he's surrounded by veterans and you know good actors and everybody wants you know you just want to see more of him mm -hmm. i also i also think like what you start to see in this film especially is a lot of the fights that Bruce stage are little interrogations with what would you do if something happened? How yeah. would you handle a katana? How would you handle somebody like the fight with Bob Baker? Yeah. Somebody who's a little bit bigger than you and changes his style on you. Right. And, and, and you can and... see Bruce adjust to it. Like Bruce mm -hmm. fights him for a while. Then Bruce gets faster and, and, and bites him. Yeah, <laughs> right? which is like it's I don't know, kind of a small monumental moment that a, a martial arts star bit him in the bit his opponent in the ankle because he had to do it to get to get free. Well, yeah, and because think, right at that moment, I mean, Baker really had the goods on him. You know, he's got this arm lock and and he's he's very vulnerable at that moment. So you right, do what you got to do. Yeah, so I really think this is the this film is the beginning of Bruce as like a real film star and a real like sort of different voice in martial arts like somebody who um who is not it's not just fight choreography for the sake of entertainment it's somewhat also fight choreography for the sake of teaching you how you handle situations if you're watching carefully and i i really appreciate that about him yeah yeah there, there's 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 a, a lot going on here i mean there's a story there's all the cultural stuff that we have already talked about but you're right there this is kind of a, a training manual for some folks uh, and and i definitely want to get michael's perspective on that as well michael you know as a young person you were you were inspired to take on these disciplines and make them part of your own way of life and you know uh, what do you what what do you have to say about Bruce Lee as kind of an inspirational figure? You've talked about watching, you know, Enter the Dragon dozens of times and all of that. Um, what was it that pulled you in to say, 
you know, I don't want to just admire that guy. I, I don't want to just, you know, put his poster on my wall. I want to, <laughs> I want to walk in that path and, and I want to make this part of my own experience. I mean, I, I'm not sure that Richard or Jason and I can claim to have taken too many steps down that particular road, but, but you have, and, and I, and I appreciate that, but I also <laughs> just want to know what, what was the kind of uh, the hook, the, 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 the mental, uh, you know, turning point that said, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I didn't go to him, you know, as I think I mentioned in the last podcast, it was, he, um, <laughs> I thought it was, yeah. you know, I went to see Enter the Dragon because I thought it was a monster movie. And uh, right. as, as a nine-year-old, I went in thinking I was going to see a dragon, but I came out feeling like I had just found something else in my life that I never mm-hmm. let go of. I mean, I started taking martial arts within six months of seeing that movie. And uh, I started Aikido for a while. Then I ended up joining some other martial arts studios a couple of years later. Um, but yeah. it, there is something, and we talked a little bit about this last time, about his personality. It's, it was more than just his, his ability to fight, because I don't think I even truly understand, uh, understood it back then. There was something about him. But I think it was his way of reaching mm-hmm. people. And people that knew him said that, that you, he, he reached you. And I think as an actor, that's important. So even you can sit here and and argue about a person's versatility as an actor, which, like I said, I think Bruce Lee had versatility. And you, when you watch him in, in The Big Boss, where he's playing this sort of shy little ranch hand character that just kind of at the very end kind of flips out to go fight the boss, then you watch this character of Chen Zan, Chen Chen, where if you watch the film, you can see that there's elevations to where he goes. Like in the beginning, he comes and he's very sad and he's very kind of almost pulled in and then when he falls on the grave site and gets hit on the head he he starts getting quiet but still very focused and then after he's he kills the 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 murderer of his teacher Wong Chung he's mm-hmm. a different character at that point that's where he starts looking around like Zatoichi or you know Nakadai and creating that that element and and his next film uh, Way of the Dragon he plays this sort of bumbling goofball guy that just happens to know martial arts and and the dragon is another so he he has these different levels he was he knew what he was doing when he would translate it and I think that communication as a kid hit me and I got to tell you, you know, I mean, it changed my life for sure. I got interested in film. I got interested in martial arts. I got interested in health. And and um, and it's just kind of nice now to come back to a film like this, for instance, and look at it from the perspective of a craftsman rather than just a martial arts hungry, you know, 12 year old. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Because he's he's putting together a, a, a pretty complete package. And you're right. It, it's his facial expressions. Mm, yeah. It's it's the sounds that he makes while he's fighting. It's the way he positions his body uh, after he's made a big blow or as he's preparing to be attacked. Uh, it, it is. I mean, you see a lot of other really you know proficient martial artists in this film and in many others. I, we haven't really talked about uh, Suzuki was it Ricky Hashimoto is his name. Yes, uh, yes. He, he he was a he was a, like a professional baseball player. There's a really nice little uh, featurette on the on the disc of kind of yeah. him many years later talking about his his career, his experience. And Dai you know, like said, he was an <laughs> yeah he he was an athlete who basically got you know after it was time to kind of hang up the cleats and and try something different. Is like you know uh, he he yeah. you know, comes on set and you know he's got this 
killer mustache and, oh, and yeah. just great facial i mean a, a, an awesome villain you know but i mean you, you see those guys and they're like they're good at what they do but they, they just don't have that kind of magnetism that that bruce lee has and uh yeah it is it's just it's quite a remarkable all-around uh, performance and certainly makes him a very worthy subject of this you know comprehensive box set that we've just sort of been dipping into on this one particular film yeah uh jason let me just kind of give you a chance to kind of summarize some of your thoughts about this film as we kind of wind things down i do want to check back in with michael to hear about some of his more recent projects and all of that yes but, once again i'm well out of my weight class <laughs> um yeah uh i yes i did take a semester of taekwondo in college nice if 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 the women wanted to be with him and the men wanted to be him. The closest I ever got physically with would be Sammo Hung. Ah, great. Um, <laughs> uh, not 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 ability, mind you. Just uh, fitness. Um, <laughs> it's 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 great to have easy access to these films because it's impossible to know where how his trajectory would have been shaped. As he was with this, especially the break, the real big breakthrough internationally, because you you can see the trajectory that the the style of film took, but it didn't have Bruce Lee to to direct its future. Um, you know how the back of all the Criterion say you know an important part of cinematic history, or something uh, mm-hmm. thereabouts. This box set certainly does fall into that yep uh especially this film yeah no i I think i think it's a very worthy entry this is not just a knockoff i mean they had already released the jackie chan police story films Mm -hmm. and of course all the samurai films uh, that's been a part of criterion going all the way back to the almost the very beginning uh but yeah uh you know we talked about the touch of zen and and king who i i think there's more i i think there's there's some other great martial arts stuff out there and hopefully criterion will get their hands on it but certainly there are other purveyors of these films and that's kind of where i want to shift the the, the talk over to michael and what you're doing with the uh, pearl river and kind of your ongoing bruce exploitation project so kind of just tell listeners what you got going on maybe even people who didn't hear the previous episode but want to know a little bit more about what you're doing on kind of the the production side or the distribution side of uh, getting some of these neglected and almost entirely lost uh whether you want to call them classics <laughs> or, or or gems from the past but but they're an important part of movie history so uh take it away michael tell us what you got going well on. just i'm i went out and shot a documentary with uh seven films actually that we we did in hong kong and and taiwan and south korea and and while i was there doing this documentary which i had kind of pitched to david gregory who who's one of the heads over there at seven films I realized once I got there how many of these movies are are fading. We we got a director, a guy named Lee So Nam, who actually happened to direct Fist of Fury Part Two, and we went to screen some of his films at the Taiwan Film Archive, and they were just hor- horrendous. I mean, that, that was all they had. It was the only prints they had, and they were just brown and cut and chopped. And he even looked, turned to look at me and said, "Oh, this is bad," <laughs> you know. Um, wow. And it just sort of sent me down a road going. You know, when I turn on YouTube and I want to look up the Seven Commandments of Kung Fu or the Thundering Mantis or some of the older films that actually, whether you're into martial arts films or not, as you guys were talking about, they 
there there is elements from Yun Wu Ping to you know uh, John Wu etc that have had their starts in these movies and Jackie Chan of course and Sammo Hung. As a matter of fact, in this movie, you've got four four of the seven little fortunes, which were the famous troupe uh, out of the Peking Opera that included Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Yun Bu. Um, and a number of others, and Yun Hua, who's also in this film, he's the one that Bruce Lee um, punches at the front of the gates after kicking the sign, or right before kicking the sign. And so anyway, in a nutshell, I went on this mission and, and ended up forming a company, a production company, or a distribution company called Pearl River, which its focus is to be, hopefully, the criterion, in a sense, of, of martial arts films. And we were looking to try to find old prints um, that are still surviving or hopefully, um, you know, HD masters that might be buried somewhere to get some of the films, not all of them, obviously, but to really try and pick and choose those those that have some merit, some cinematic history that are that don't exist outside of a crappy four by three crop pan and scan version that you might find on YouTube. And then still try to get some of these interviews with some of these people that are still alive. I mean, we've three of the people we interviewed uh, during our documentary have already passed away, you know, so it's not it's mm. it's getting to that point. Wow. You know, some of these people were adults in their 70s, yeah. so they're not you know, they're not all uh, around anymore. And they're quickly um, and not only that, but not their memories aren't always the best. So anyways, I'm sure. trying my best to to put together a, a, a segment of history that's kind of overlooked. Now, Arrow's coming out with the Shaw Brothers box set yeah but you know that's the shaw brothers and the cost of trying to get those films is one thing but i'm looking more at the independent films that are a little harder to come by and and uh, maybe didn't get quite the same limelight shown on them but there's a gigantic fan base for or people that really want to see some of the older works of these people we're a little more familiar with now in their later stages of their career well, yeah, and even if they are not, you know, like, you know, Hall of Fame classics, Criterion, or even Arrow-worthy, they still provide really fantastic context. I think, you know, one of the things I've always loved about doing this podcast, and even though I am talking about, you know, films that have risen to the certain of the top of a of their class in terms of reputation, but just seeing the context of what was happening in cinema uh, around the, the lives and times of these great performers, the Bruce Lee's, the Jackie Chan's, et cetera, uh, to see kind of how, what, what made them so distinct uh, uh, up against the, the competition or the others that were out there, as well as people who for reasons far beyond their control, just never got the break but perhaps deserve a lot more exposure than, uh, you know, history and the elements uh, have allowed. So I, um, I enthusiastically support your work, Michael, and appreciate what you're doing and, and definitely very eager to, you know, see some of the fruits of that. So, uh, you know, just happy to, yeah, yeah, happy to give you an opportunity to kind of put the word out there. And, uh, you know, do you have like a website or, or places where people can go to kind of stay in touch with, you know, yeah, and maybe how close are you to having uh, what might be a commercial release or well, we, uh, we've, you know, some some other way? To get sure, involved? sure. I, yeah. Pearl River is very grassroots. We're only put we've only put out about a, kind of averaged about a movie, maybe two movies a year. But we're about to hopefully up our load. That uh, there's not a Pearl River site per se, but if you go to VCI, VCI's Entertainment. Right. They're actually the longest mm-hmm. running home video company. They started doing the first straight to video movies back in the eighties. Um, so they, uh, they had, when I found out that they had had a couple of negatives and, and prints of these old Kung Fu movies, that's how it started. I called them up. I said, well, you would, what, what do you want to redo these with special editions? And so they got interested in doing that, but, um, 
If you go to VCI, there's also a Facebook page for Pearl River. Um, the Bruceploitation Bible, which is where a lot of this information will get kind of from all different sides, will be is also on Facebook and on Instagram and Twitter. And then I just clicked the like. Uh, there we go. I appreciate that. All right. Oh, Bing! I got the one like. There we go. Um, and then, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and I keep feel that. keep your eye on Severin. Severin, we've got something really in in this vein that's going to be pretty epic. You know, if the Shaw Brothers looks epic, what we're doing there in a in a different sort of a different angle, but it's going to be just as epic. I think. <laughs> so we've been working I very mean, hard at it. The stuff that Severin's put out lately, the the giant collections. Yeah, you know they're they're really doing God's work on a lot of Amazing this stuff, stuff. Yeah. that nobody's going to want to put the time or effort into. But you know, then you get a giant Andy Milligan set and, and the Al Adamson. Yeah, set. Al Adamson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stuff, well, I mean, stuff come I never on, it's I just like not in my life. Oh my goodness! Exactly. Yeah, yeah so, especially in these deluxe editions with all the trimmings. I mean, Richard, I think you've been collecting kind of low low rent dvds yeah. and whatever you can find for a long time and i see all these upgrades yeah, yeah. that you've been putting out on yeah. facebook uh, this has got to be kind of like uh you know the mother yeah, load right every, here. everything that michael's saying is like fascinating to me <laughs> We're, you'll be happy richard i promise it's yeah. coming you're gonna be happy and uh we've uh, yeah it's gonna be good it's there's gonna be a lot of twos and threes part twos and part threes you'll be seeing so um but yeah it's i appreciate you for giving me a yeah, pearl river and um and then some ex- just separate uh, independent projects with uh like severn that i'll be i've been working on in terms of this uh in terms of this genre anyway excellent all right well michael i really appreciate that and uh, send me some links. I'll put them in the show notes. People just scroll down to the bottom of the page and you'll be able to find, uh, you know, some of those uh, resources and, and just kind of, you know, stay, keep tabs on, on what, what Michael's got going on. So, all right. I think that's going to wrap up our conversation for today. Uh, thank you guys. I know we've got, we've had to wrestle through a little bit of uh, ins and outs here with, with the feed, but I hopefully we'll get good files out of all this and I'll work my editing magic and, and uh, you know, skip over some of the rough spots and the gaps and, and make it all flow as smooth as I possibly can. So um, my next episode, Richard, I think you and I are going to be getting together to talk about some of Giallo. Uh, what have you done to Solange? That's uh, currently yeah, playing on the one. Criterion channel. <laughs> and uh, I, I am really new to that whole genre. So I'm, I'm again, stepping into some new territory. So I'm going to trust you and i think uh alexander cormier is going to join us for that one as well so uh but i'm going to be taking a little week's vacation or so so it'll probably be coming out either later in august maybe even around labor day or whatever so don't hold your breath but i'm going to enjoy some summer and uh take a little bit of break from the podcast and i'll be back uh, soon enough and we'll talk about some bloody italian giallo <laughs> richard you want to give me what, what am i in what am i in for here jason it sounds like you've got some exposure to that film as well what's uh what's going on over i think this Solange. is one of the best giallos there is so it's a very good it's a very good yeah. introduction to the genre i, I really love it. yeah I, I read up a little bit about it and that's what convinced me it says yeah i'm, I'm not going to skip this one i think this is one i want to kind of broaden my horizons just a little bit here it's it's definitely one of the very good ones there's I mean, it's it's a rabbit hole that you can yeah. <laughs> really get into trouble with your life with. Yeah, um, that's exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> but I mean, you know me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I, I'm excited to hear it, and 
I need to keep closer looks at the spreadsheet. Cool. If we're getting more giallo going on. Hey, if you're ever, ever interested, I, I won't turn you down. So uh, sure. we'll, we'll talk that over. Okay, very good. Well, listeners, thank you so much. I hope you're all enjoying your summer, staying safe and healthy and all of that. Uh, Richard, Michael, Jason, it's been a real blast talking to you, despite the technical hiccups. Uh, <laughs> had a great conversation and uh, just enhanced my appreciation of, of Bruce Lee and all that he brought into this world in his all-too-short life. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be at you real soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> Of fury.